Hey everyone, before we get into today's episode, I just want to let you know that our friends at Outdoor Edge have partnered with some great brands to help bring your fall full circle with their field to freezer to fire giveaway. Here's how you enter. Go to their Facebook page and sign up to win some awesome prizes and packages from brands including Yeti, Weston, Bradley Smokers, and more. These are some awesome products that will help you process your game, keep your game in the freezer, and eventually cook it for your table. You have until January 15th to sign up, so take advantage of that. Outdoor Edge in the Field to Freezer to Fire giveaway. Go to their Facebook page and make it happen. And if you decide to purchase any products from the website, enter the discount code NATION30. That's the word NATION with the number 30 after that. No spaces, NATION30, and you will receive 30% off your purchase. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. Merry Christmas Eve, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Average Conservationist Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Ewing, and this is episode 31. Uh, today on the podcast, I am joined by Sam Dwinell. Uh, Sam is a board member for 2% for Conservation, as well as a wildlife uh, researcher. Um, Sam and I really cover a lot of different topics today, um, including you know, how she got into um, wildlife research uh, and how really that career path uh, led her into um, you know a, a life of of hunting and, and in the outdoors. Um, you know she spends a lot of her time um, studying big game animals uh, in the greater uh, Yellowstone ecosystem. So spends a lot of time with mule deer, um, some bighorn sheep, um, moose as well. Um, so it's it's cool to hear some of the stories that she has. Um, Sam is actually getting ready to embark on a trip over to Norway where she will be studying, um, the effects of climate, uh, climate change on reindeer. So the fact that Sam is actually, um, in the coming weeks leaving for Norway and studying reindeer, uh, it only seemed, um, like the right thing to do to, to launch her, um, her episode here on Christmas Eve. So um without any further ado here is sam dwinell 
but before we get into today's episode, I just want to take a minute to tell you about our partners over at Stone Glacier. Uh, be sure and check them out at StoneGlacier.com. Uh, I actually just had a chance um, this past weekend or the weekend before to um, test out the new Skyline Bino Harness, um, and it is unlike any of the Bino Harnesses that I've used in the past. Um, this thing is fully adjustable regardless of the size um, binoculars you guys are running. Um, these things can be adjusted. Uh, they're very user-friendly. They're super lightweight, streamlined. Um, one of the things I really liked about them is, you know, anyone that runs a bino harness is familiar with the tether system. So that way you can, you know, pull your glass in and out without any problems. With this, uh, one of the <clears throat> changes that they implemented is there's just one leash on it, one tether system. So it gives you a lot more kind of range of motion, um, you know, when you're out there and you can adjust, you know, where that leash sits. So, you know, really the whole thing is just very um, customizable to how you like to run your system. Um, if you guys haven't, I highly suggest uh, checking it out. The price point is 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 great for, for what you're getting. And, you know, like everything else that Stone Glacier builds um, or Stone Glacier makes, it's it's rock solid and uh, you're not going to be disappointed with the quality in it. So again, be sure and check out them, stoneglacier.com. All right. On the line with me today, I have 2% for conservation board member, Sam Dwinell. Sam, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I, uh, I'm glad we were able to get this chance to record because um, I know I mentioned it before we actually started recording here, but um, you've got some big stuff that's in the works and I know time is kind of of the essence, so I'm glad we were able to, to squeeze this in. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> so... Sam, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to listen to the podcast in the past or not, but one of the thing, the excuse me, one of the things I always kind of like to to start off with and get to know about a person is kind of how they were introduced to the outdoors and, and what the outdoors you know looked like to them growing up, you know, even if they didn't kind of get into it until later in their life. So, kind of take me through that. What is what is kind of your first outdoor experience, or or what really kind of uh, sparked your love for the outdoors? Yeah, I actually, I didn't grow up in like a outdoorsy family. Um, I never, I've actually never camped with either one of my parents in my entire life. <laughs> Neither <laughs> one of them were really into that kind of thing. Um, but I grew up in Southern Minnesota and there's loads of lakes in yeah. Southern Minnesota. And uh, both of my grandparents, both my mom and, and dad's parents had a cabin and a trailer on the same lake that was maybe, you know, 15 miles outside of the town that I grew up in. And I essentially spent my entire summers out at that lake, um, fishing with my, my dad's dad. Um, my, my grandpa, I would wake up early morning and go fishing with him. He'd, he'd go out and catch his limit of pan fry fish you know, sunnies and crappies every single yeah. morning. And I would, I would sit in the boat and play with minnows and and, worms <laughs> and, and try to fish a little bit. Um, so I grew up like really, you know, being connected to the outdoors in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, like never really was into camping or anything like that until, uh, when I was, I think I was 14 13 or 14 went on a boundary waters trip with like a, like a youth church group kind of thing. Right. Um, and, and that was my first time 
like camping in the backcountry. And I remember like seeing the Northern Lights while I was out there and being like, oh yeah, this is, this is like my place. This is, this is what I want to do. And I, I want to have these kinds of experiences as much as I can. Um, so really, you know, I, I, uh, uh, after that, you know, again, as a teenager, it's like hard to get those experiences if your family's not into it. Right. So I would just try to seek them out as much as I could on my own. And then when I got to college, I really got into trying to camp and backpack as, as much as I could. Um, but really, you know, as far as, um, the way that I interacted with the outdoors for the majority of my life and still today, um, was mostly in the like, quote unquote, non-consumptive way right. of, of being outside, you know, like, which we all know is like a total fallacy. It's all, all consumptive in some capacity. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. I mean, aside from fishing, when I was really young, I kind of, you know, I didn't, uh, I haven't really fished much since then. And I didn't really take up hunting until, um, my mid twenties. Okay. Um, so yeah, I grew up, my grandpa hunted, but it wasn't anything, you know, I was, I was a girl. I was, you know, I have two sisters and so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really, hunting wasn't really available to us. Um, and also I like had the mindset of, you know, I loved the venison jerky that my grandpa would, would give us, but I was kind of like, uh, you're, you know, you're killing Bambi. Yeah. <laughs> like, totally, totally gave into that stereotype. Um, and, it, and, you know, as I got older and realized, you know, the, the real conservation implications that are associated with hunting and fishing, um, I, I got, I was more attracted to hunting itself. Yeah. And so, um, you know, aside from just that, the, you know, the, conservation contributions of hunting i also was into the the idea of you know of animals that you harvest the meat that you get from that is really the most organic right. sustainable meat that you can possibly get and so um those two things kind of motivated me to start being a hunter an adult onset hunter and i think i was 27 when i first first hunted Okay. Um, and yeah. But I think y y the, the story of, of kind of how you were introduced um, to, I guess, just the outdoors in general, right? With, with your grandfather um, and with spending, you know, summers on the lake and fishing and stuff like that. I feel like that's a, a pretty common way for um, a lot of individuals to get introduced to the outdoors, right? It's a very casual um, experience or a way to be introduced to it, right? There's... It, it, I don't really know the best way to put it, and I'm getting a little distracted <laughs> because someone just dropped something off at our front porch here, and the dog is just barking because for the first time they decided to ring the doorbell when they left the package, so I apologize for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's quite all right. <laughs> um, so now, as you got into hunting, uh, like you said, in your mid-20s, what was it that kind of, um, I guess, flipped that switch, or, or what caused you to kind of make that change to, to then become a, a more you know, consumptive user in the traditional sense. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, um, you know, I do, I do wildlife research, I do wildlife work. And, um, I had been, you know, after right out of college, I, 
I did a lot of wildlife tech work. Um, so basically, you know, I was the the person that would go out. I'd get hired on these uh, in these seasonal positions and mostly go out and collect data and would really spend like all my time outside, mm -hmm. like you know, studying wildlife and collecting data and behavior or whatever. Um, and so right out of college, I was kind of more, um, you know, I, I was into conservation biology and I was really into birds at the time. And so I was kind of like, oh, I want to, um, you know, I, I had no interest in studying big game at right. all or with big game. I was like, I want to be like the voice for the underdog. I want to, you know, be the one like I want to study endangered species and, you know, kind of make make waves and make impact, um, meaningful conservation impacts in that way. Um, but I, you know, I moved out west immediately after graduating um, from my undergrad at the University of Minnesota Duluth. And and uh, out here, you know, there was a lot of work in working with big game. Yeah. Um, and so I just kind of, as I was trying to, you know, sort of piece, uh, you know, piecemeal work together so I consistently had employment, yeah. I found myself working with big game species. Um, and in that, in that, I realized like, oh, wow, actually, you know, working, working with big game, it's a way to make like really like big strides in conservation one because there's actual you know there's money in it like right these species um and and two these animals they just occupy a lot of land and so if you can conserve them you can conserve um the landscapes that or you can if you can conserve them you conserve the habitats that they use right. which then obviously you know they kind of conserve they conserve as like an umbrella species sure um and so this is, this sounds like I'm not answering your question, but I'm definitely getting there. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're good. <laughs> and so I think like in sort of doing research in that world, working with big game, I realized like, oh man, like hunting is actually like a really meaningful and powerful way to, to contribute to, to conservation. Mm -hmm. And, and I felt like for me, um, to understand, uh, to understand conservation through hunting and and through big game species, like I wanted to participate in that. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to experience what it was like and and be a contributor in in that way by actively hunting myself um, and being able to like relate to the communities that I interacted with and studying big game species. You know, you inevitably interact with. The, the hunting and angling community quite a bit and I wanted to I wanted to um, you know be a part of that um, so it was like you know part of it was the part of the motivation for hunting was that but then also as I mentioned like just having the the you know the most sustainable meat out there like I'm yeah. not, I don't eat a whole lot of meat and I'm I'm not really into like you know the really the big like meat industry mm -hmm. um and so i this you know hunting is an opportunity for me to be able to eat meat and yeah. have it be like you know good quality food yeah there's yeah. <clears throat> there's certainly and and maybe 
It's just that I've paid attention more to it over the last, uh, let's say, handful of years. But and I don't want to say angle because I don't feel like that's the right word. But the the presence of harvesting your own meat, like you know, the the field to table kind of movement, and people wanting to know where their meat came from and being possibly or potentially the only person that's actually touched that meat. Um, it seems to be that there's a, a, a lot more of a focus on that in, in the outdoor world. Um, and I don't know if that's just, um, because social media, there's just a, a lot more spread and, and, you know, people who kind of feel that way or, or hunt or fish for that reason for, you know, for sustainability. Uh, but it seems like there's a, a big emphasis put back on that as opposed to, you know, I think back maybe like 10 or 15 years ago and it, it seemed to be like about more about the trophy, right? Like the size of the rack or, you know, how big the fish was or, or whatever the case is. So it's nice to see things that are the, the focus put on something positive with conservation. And, and really, I mean, that's the reason our ancestors started hunting to begin with, right? It was it was to to sustain, you know, your health and well-being and to, to feed your friends and your family and everything. So if, if it almost feels like things have kind of come I don't want to say full circle, but that we've gotten back to a point of, of, you know, why hunting is conservation and why hunting is so important. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, um, I think part of the motivation too, why, uh, more people are hunting, um, with the motivation of like getting sustainable meat in our fridge and, you know, in our freezers is because we, you know, we are becoming more and more aware of the, uh, the impacts that humans have on the environment and really just like the, the rapid change that, that is induced by our presence. And, and honestly, like the, the damage that that's done, um, within our ecosystems, like, I think we're, we're becoming more aware of that where there are more stories being told about like, Hey, this is how, how the way we operate in this world, this is how it affects other animals and and habitats and all of that. And I think it, it motivates people to want to honestly do better and, and, you know, be able to take some responsibility and, you know, as an individual take action that, that helps us exist in a more sustainable way in this world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've kind of touched on it a little bit in some of your answers here, but I want to talk about what it is that you do for a living. What's your, your, your profession, your career. So tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm a wildlife researcher. Um, I have mostly over the last, I guess the last decade or, or more, really the last like, um, 12 years or so I've worked primarily with large mammals. So ungulates, um, mostly I've focused on mule deer. I've also worked with bighorn sheep and and moose a little bit. Um, and I am about to, um, move to Norway at the, the end of this month to work with Svalbard reindeer, uh, in the Arctic. Um, so yeah, a lot of my research is focused on um, the ways that animals are adapted to their environment, like how they behave, how they're physiologically adapted to their environment, what those connections are that those animals have with the place that they live in, how how they use that to be able to survive and reproduce, 
and um, you know how the presence of, of humans on the landscape and the ways that we use use our our landscapes, how that may affect those relationships that animals have with with their habitats and in their environment. Yeah, so there's probably more questions than we have time <laughs> to get into just about you know studying big game. Now, I would assume that the the three um, like species that you mentioned there with uh, bighorn sheep, uh, mule deer, and moose that's just relative to kind of your your area and and the habit or the animals that you have within you, the landscape of where you live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and and really, it's just um, you know, I I think a lot of researchers we don't like choose a certain species. Typically we don't choose a certain species and are like, Oh, that's the thing that I want to study for the rest of my life. Like indeed some folks are motivated by a specific species, but I think most researchers are motivated by like ecological processes and, and um, you know, interested in ideas that expand beyond the species themselves. Um, And so, yeah, that's why, you know, I, I think I've mostly worked with mule deer and some people I wouldn't say it myself because I always have a lot to learn, but like I could be regarded as like a mule deer expert because that's the species I've worked with the most. Okay. But like I, you know, it's, um, I am mo- mostly fascinated by the ecology of the animal and you could insert, you know, any kind of large herbivore into that context. So you know, I'm interested in, in, you know, foraging the ecology of, of mule deer and bighorn sheep and moose, you know, the, the nutritional ecology of those animals. Um, so yeah, it is, like you said, I've, I've studied those animals because I've lived in, you know, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem for right. a while. That's just that those are the large herbivores that occur here. So now, taking a a quick step back here when you were in school when you were in college there is that what you had studied to become was a wildlife researcher or is it um the the position of being a wildlife researcher just kind of a byproduct of of your degree whether it was in biology uh, or something like that yeah so my my undergrad was at the university of minnesota duluth as i mentioned before and that was actually in just like general biology i Mm -hmm. double majored in biology and environmental studies okay um there wasn't really much of a wildlife program at the at, at UMD in Duluth. Like the University of Minnesota has a great wildlife program, but I went to a campus that didn't have one, and I actually didn't even realize that wildlife research um, was something that was in in reach for me. Like okay. I, I didn't I didn't really like honestly know what it entailed. Like as a, a little kid myself with like 90% of other like eight-year-old children I wanted to be a marine biologist because I (laughs) you know watched like documentaries on sharks and thought they were cool and it was like oh yeah that's that's a profession that you can do if you want to handle you know you can that's like something you can touch and like put yeah I gotcha totally (laughs) yeah and then you know it, it kind of that that I idea um kind of faded as I as I got older and went to college and it really wasn't until like my senior year of of undergrad I took an ornithology course and I took a conservation biology course and I was 
at that point I was like, oh man, this is actually what I want to do. Like I want to do wildlife work. Um, I was lucky. And I think this is like really a common tale for most wildlife researchers. Like I, I was lucky where the professor that I had for both of those classes, um, you know, I, I went up to him one day after, after class and was like, Hey, I really want to get into like wildlife work. Do you have, do you have any like volunteer work or is there any way I can get into it? And he, he was looking to hire a tech at that time. Um, who actually like my job was, um, to pick up dead birds that hit windows of these mansions that, that have, that are (laughs) along this migratory path along Lake Superior. Um, uh, it's called canal park. It's like this little spit that comes out, um, along Lake Superior and the way that Lake Superior is oriented, it kind of comes down to a point and, and migratory birds, I mean, you know, millions of migratory birds end up instead of flying across Lake Superior, they kind of fly along the shore. And Mm -hmm. so they end up being funneled down to this one point. Okay. Um, and so these mansions are like literally in this, like one of the arguably more important migratory paths in North America. And so, yeah, my job was to, it was like a 10 mile bike. I would like bike out to the end of the, this <laughs> canal park and pick up all the dead birds at all the homes and put them in my backpack and then bring them back and, <laughs> and identify them. And I oftentimes had class like right afterwards. So I'd like just go to class with like a backpack full of dead birds. <laughs> which was always... Could you imagine that nowadays? <laughs> I know. I'd like pull out my notebook and like, you know, some, I don't know, some kind of like a yellow warbler would fall out or something like that. Yeah, feathers coming out of the pages of your books and everything. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, But yeah, so anyways, it was like one of those things where it was just like, I was interested and I was so lucky to have someone that that was willing to give me the opportunity to get into any kind of wildlife work. And immediately I was, I was hooked on it at that point. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, after that I pursued, like I said, just wildlife tech work for years um, until, and then I went back to, to grad school. I got my master's at the university of Wyoming in 2013 is when I went back to school okay. in Laramie. And that was studying, um, mule deer of the Wyoming range. Um, and so since then I've mostly, you know, largely just studied mule deer with like a few projects, um, that I've helped out on with bighorn sheep and, and moose. Okay. Now <clears throat> there's one specific, um, project that I want to get into, uh, in regards to mule deer. But a question I had before we got into that was, has there been like any, you know, in the different studies and the the work that you've been doing in the research, is there anything, um, that kind of surprised you, I guess, and maybe that's, it's a very broad term, but in terms of like the way that mule deer, um, just in their general behavior or something that you, you know, maybe being familiar, you know, with, um, you know, with the species beforehand, but after studying it for, you know, seven, eight, nine years that it's kind of just very surprising to you, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think anybody 
who studies a certain species for a long time, like you're constantly surprised by what they do. Like animals just, animals just do crazy things <laughs> and things that, you know, things that you just wouldn't, wouldn't expect, you know, especially like read the theory of how animals are supposed to be. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of science is trying to figure out, you know, averages and generalize it across individuals. And so you always have, within that you have like the broad spectrum of right you know the anomalous animals um but anyways yeah i mean i think uh so you know speaking to mule deer specifically um i was actually like pretty like i was not interested in mule deer at all like for a long time um way back in the day in like 2008 i think it was I worked uh, on a mule deer project where we had like semi-tame deer that we we would bring out to these patches. We'd like build an enclosure for them, and uh, we were monitoring um, how like what kind of food they were selecting for, and like what their bite counts were, and like basically monitoring their or we were uh, evaluating their foraging behavior relative to. Um, different grazing intensities. Okay. So, so basically what this job entailed was like, we had a bunch of mule deer that were in like a horse trailer that we would haul to these places throughout like, like Western, Western Washington and, uh, um, or sorry, excuse me, um, Western Idaho and Eastern Washington. And we would hang out with these mule deer like all day long. Like they had names and oh everything. And, and they're, you know, they, they were kind of a pain in the ass, (laughs) you know, they, they all had different personalities. There was one mule deer in particular, her name was Phoebe and I freaking hated Phoebe because she was just, (laughs) she was such a pain. Um, and so like after that project, I was like, I don't want to work with mule deer like ever again. Like I'm over these animals. Um, but then I just like, I ended up finding myself uh working with mule deer again years later like a few years later um i I got a job in jackson with the teton science schools it was a roadway ecology project um you know trying to understand how uh roadways throughout the jackson area affected mule deer movement and habitat selection and you know what prompted wildlife vehicle collisions and and all of those things and when i started working on that project you know the that population of mule deer are largely migratory animals and so they hang out in the winter time they hang out in you know downtown jackson right you know like eating like I, I saw one mule deer where there was this this boy that would go and feed her tortillas, like leftover tortillas every <laughs> single day, like hand feed this mule deer oh, wow. tortillas in the winter. And then, which I obviously do not support that. <laughs> you should not feed wildlife ever. <laughs> um, but, you know, then that animal would go and migrate in the summertime and spend her summer in Grand Teton National Park. You know, and and there were mule deer that one in particular that, you know, summered in or wintered in Jackson and then would summer and give birth below static peak, which is like, you know, basically in this like alpine 
basin in the like the last patch of crumholtz that there was up on this mountain she that's where she would give birth and so the really the phenomenon of migration was like that was one of the first major surprises that for me um in like mule deer behavior and and how they made a living you know it was it was one of those things where it's like man these animals do these like really have these really incredible journeys and live in these totally disparate habitat at different times a year and if you didn't you know if you weren't tracking them there you would have no idea that the animal that's eating your bird feed in your backyard is the same one that in the summertime you see like scaling this cliff in the Tetons, <laughs> yeah. you know, like they kind of have these like hidden lives that, that you don't <laughs> really realize until you start studying them. So now that kind of brings me to, um, the project that I wanted to, to talk to you about was that, um, <clears throat> deer 139 that you, that you were a part of, um, so I wasn't familiar with this, uh, you know, prior to like I was I was reading through your bio um, on Two Percent's website and it, and it talked about that. So I was like, oh, let me go check this out. And it's actually, it's a really cool story um, and kind of how it all played out and, and the journey on that. So why don't you tell us about uh, Deer One Thirty Nine? Yeah, so Deer One Thirty Nine is a um, a film project that that I was a part of, uh, and really it was a storytelling project. Um, so, uh, what the film is about is it's myself and a couple of close friends of mine. We followed the spring migration route of deer 139. Um, so went from her winter range outside of, uh, big piney in, in Wyoming, um, went from her winter range to her summer range, which is way up, um, outside of Etna in, in Wyoming. So on the opposite end of the Wyoming range and really on the west side of the salt range. Um, so yeah, the, the film follows our journey, um, along her migration path, uh, in the springtime, you know, dealing with all of the challenges that animals deal with during that time. And really the, the motivation of it was to be able to highlight, um, you know, one, the challenges that animals face uh, during migration. So uh, whether they're, you know, human-made challenges or whether they're just natural challenges that they face, um, you know, kind of through our firsthand experience of that, being able to share that with other people. Um, It also was an opportunity for us to share some of our science in migration ecology that that we um, that we've been conducting at the University of Wyoming and in particular at the Wyoming Cooperative Research Unit and the Monteith shop of the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources. Um, you know, it's a, it was a storytelling opportunity to share share some of that science. Um, and also it's the a motivation of the film was to kind of tell those stories of, of science and, and wildlife and like highlight the athleticism of these animals and, you know, kind of use that story to build an appreciation for a species that may oftentimes be overlooked or taken for granted. Um, Be able to share those stories, but um, in a way that targets an audience that, that typically is not 
tuned in to, to uh, mule deer ecology or, or big game um, ecology in that it's an adventure film. Right. And so, you know, an adventure film, it's an all women, all women crew. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of, I describe it as a, a conservation film that's in the guise of an adventure film. So we're trying to, you know, reach those audiences, you know, adventure film goers um, that typically, you know, typically aren't, aren't uh, a part of conversations in conservation. Right. So now deer 139, <clears throat> I'm assuming um, that it was a tag deer that you guys, that's how you were monitoring um, her um, like travel route and travel path and whatnot. So how long were you, um, I guess, tracking this deer before you decided to um, put together the, the plan to actually, you know, document her journey and follow along with that? Yeah. Yeah, so you're exactly right. She's a, a deer, one of our study animals from the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project. That, that's the one that I started working on in my master's in 2013. Okay. Um, and so that project is actually still going on today. We were um, actually just last week, uh, we were, I was out on captures and um, handled deer 139 again. <laughs> um, so... So yeah, this this project it's a it's called an individual based longitudinal research project, and basically what that means is we we track uh, the experiences of individual animals throughout their whole life okay. uh, as, as best as we can. Um, so you know we capture it started off where we captured adult animals and fit them with you know GPS collars and and with the GPS collar data we can know you know exactly where they go the habitats they use the the way they respond to um different uh different constraints in their environment you know predators or roadways or whatever it may be um and we with this research we take that and we connect it to again the individual so like how does their experiences throughout their life affect their ability to reproduce? What does it mean for their, um, what we call nutritional conditions? So like the amount of fat that they gain and lose, um, over the course of a year, um, you know, how does their environment affect that? And, and with all that information, we can kind of tie it together and, and build like a, a really good comprehensive, uh, story of not only what individuals experience, but also what the whole population experiences. Um, and that oftentimes can, can yield some pretty good insight into, you know, what factors regulate the populations. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, uh, deer 139 was one of those study animals and we had her, um, we actually, she wasn't one that was in the study for that long before, um, before we followed her route. I, she, she was only part of the study for like a year and a half. I think we okay. had her collared for that time. Um, but she stood out because she had, uh, a pretty cool migration route where she went, she goes up and over, not only the Wyoming range, but then goes down into the Grays river and then up and over the salt range. So she goes over two mountain passes, um, to, to reach her summer range. And, you know, it's, it's not to say that other deer don't have like incredible, and, and like really impressive 
migration migratory paths that they follow like mm-hmm. you know she's one of a dozen animals that that we could have followed their migration route and it would have been just as cool and just as challenging and um just as impressive you know the landscape that that they follow but we chose her because she was you know she uh well in part because i was interested in the adventure of going over two mountain passes sure (laughs) (laughs) honestly that's like yeah selfishly that's what you want to do but no no (laughs) yeah yeah and she just you know we we had a good and um we had been tracking her for a little while and kind of knew what she had experienced previously. And, and yeah. So a couple things. One, I think that, you know, just, just kind of saying that outwardly, right. That she is, you know, going over two mountain ranges to get to her summer range. Like, you know, I mean, I think anyone who spends any amount of time outdoors, especially hunting um, any type of big game animal knows how tough these animals are. Um, And I think that just kind of speaks to it. The fact that you're, you know, you're crossing rivers and you're going over two mountain ranges just to get to your summer range. So a couple questions is one, how far was it from her winter range to her summer range? Uh, it was around 85 miles. Wow. Wow. That's that, that, that when you put a number to it, I mean, like I just think about like getting in my car and driving 85 miles. You know I mean, that's just, it's crazy to think about that a deer would travel that far. Which brings me to my next question is, what is it about that summer range that made her want to continue to go back and, and not maybe, you know, stop along the way and be like, oh, this is probably, you know, suitable for, for my needs and I can, you know, survive and live here just fine. Yeah, well, so, um, well, one, the summer, so animals typically migrate uh, in animals that live in seasonal seasonally variable environments use migration to to deal with resource limitations that occur Mm -hmm. in the winter time um so the wyoming range which you know is just right right below um yellowstone and grand teton national parks it's in northwestern wyoming like it's it's in the mountains and so um you know in the summertime there well in the winter time there's a lot of snow in the mountains right. and so animals just like can't you know it's kind of an inhospitable environment for these animals so they have to migrate down uh onto their winter ranges where there's less snow and there's at least some food that's available to them but they go back to these summer ranges because uh once that snow melts the the forage on these summer ranges is pretty incredible there's there's a lot of great Forbs, uh, which are, you know, wildflowers and grasses and shrubs that these animals rely on. And so typically kind of like the the more like cartoonish interpretation of it is like, you know, summertime is a, a time when a, a time of plenty where there's lots of food, um, bountiful food. And so animals go to these summer ranges um, and exploit those energy resources uh, that they then can store as fat. So essentially like stocking up on their groceries range, and then they can carry those, um, their fat reserves back onto their winter range that they then rely on to, to, um, survive the, the winter because typically winters animals are nutritionally constrained in, in the winter time. Yeah. Um, and so there's, you know, that's sort of like the greater picture of like why migration occurs 
Um, but why 139 decides to go back to the same summer range that she goes to each year, um, we believe that, you know, that's, uh, and we actually have good, good evidence of it. Um, you know, the animals go to the places that they were born. Um, it's, it's basically their migration route and their summer ranges are, uh, they learn them from their mom. Okay. And so, so she, Deer 139 was born in that, that, that summer range and um, essentially returns to it year after year. Um, and, you know, will give birth to her fawns on those summer ranges. And, and they uh, generally will also establish their their summer ranges around where where mom is okay um and and there are definitely some exceptions to that we have you know we now have been you know we have been actually studying that um explicitly studying how migration is learned and how summer ranges are established and how they're passed down from mom to offspring and uh um ramon is the one working on that project at the University of Wyoming and so we now since 2015 have um, fawns that we've collared of our collared does and we've been tracking their whole life as well so um, you know we we now have some some animals that we uh, you know, we collared as a fawn in 2015 or 2016, and it's still alive now and, and is like reproducing and recruiting. Yes. Yeah, so you have multiple fawns. generations of, of collared deer. Gen- yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have <clears throat> a few like third generation fawns that, that we've collared, wow. um, this, this last year. And so we we're starting to put together these stories of not only the individual animals, but sort of like their, their lineage and like what, you know, basically what their, what their legacy is Mm -hmm. um, that they're passing on to their offspring. And, and we are seeing in general that migration and summer ranges are passed from mom to mom to daughter. And, um, you know, but there is obviously there's always exceptions to that rule, right. but largely that's that's what's happening with these animals. Oh wow! I mean that that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think about you know like white-tailed deer, which is what I have, um, you know, my most experience with, and I think about you know kind of deer, you know, deer behavior, um, especially like a, like a younger deer, how it almost relies on you know the mother. Uh, especially in like that first year the it relies on the mother to to make the decisions and to use her instincts to react i mean i i can think about times when i'm out hunting and you know you know a yearling deer will get you know downwind of me and just doesn't you know doesn't react the same way that you know a two and a half or three and a half year old you know buck or doe would you know if they get downwind you sense your wind you know tail goes up start blowing and you know they're gone and you know the yearlings just don't quite behave like that and i'd imagine that something like a mule deer who has, you know, a winter range and a summer range and is doing all this traveling is picking up a lot more of those, you know, vital um, survival skills at, at a young age, as opposed to, you know, some other kind of species of, of ungulates that, you know, don't have to necessarily rely on that, you know, right out of the womb, so to speak. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a interesting take on it. And, um, 
yeah, it is interesting, like, uh, especially when you think of um, migratory animals in the context of, like, the Wyoming range. Um, so, and then this is kind of, sorry if I'm kind of going off on a tangent. No, here. you're good. I, I think <laughs> I kind of, like, sent you down there. <laughs> yeah. But um, so a lot of my master's work was focused on how energy development affects the behavior and physiology of mule deer. So in physiology, what I mean is like fat dynamics. So if animals are exposed to more human disturbance, are they burning through more fat because they're, you know, running away from it and, right. you know, they're, they're disturbed by it. Um, but uh, yeah, so an interesting thing about uh like these migratory animals is of the Wyoming range. So their, their winter range is, well, I'll start off with their summer range. Their summer range is like arguably really pristine, you yeah. know, like they, there's some recreation that occurs on their summer range, but there's really like no development. There's some like, you know, there's some ATV roads or two tracks, but like, it's pretty minimal. Like, their summer ranges, they're relatively undisturbed in those areas. But then their winter ranges um, are very different. And there's a lot of uh, oil and gas extraction that's occurring on their winter ranges. And so there's actually quite a bit of energy development that that occurs um, on their winter range and that these animals are exposed to for, you know, the winter months. And so um, an interesting thing about that is uh, with a lot of the research that I've done and that Hall Sawyer has also conducted on the Pinedale Anticline where there's um, a lot of uh, oil and gas extraction going on up there as well, is we see that these animals don't really habituate to the disturbance that's occurring mm. there. Okay. Um, you know, there are definitely some populations of ungulates um, including mule deer and whether this is like empirically backed or whether it's just sort of um, based on observation and an anecdote, like animals can some appear to habituate to human disturbance in, in one way or another, but we don't see that in these mule deer that, that live in that region, you know, in the um, upper Green River Basin okay. of Wyoming. And it could be, and you know, we haven't been able to really test this. It could be in part because they spend half of their year virtually seeing nobody, no people. Right. And then they spend when they come down to their winter ranges, they they're exposed to people. You know, there's um, rig workers. There's a lot of vehicles, especially in in certain areas where um, there's newer rigs that are in operation. Like there's a lot of traffic that human traffic that happens in those areas and and so we see that mule deer even though they've been exposed to it their entire lives they still exhibit behaviors of avoidance and and exhibit behaviors that suggest like they don't look like it and they yeah. they you know they behave differently when it's there and and um as a result they end up using the landscape in a different way um, than they would if there wasn't any human disturbance on their winter ranges. Okay. Well, that's, that's all interesting. And I'm sure, you know, the more, obviously the more data that you have and that you're able to collect, obviously the more, um, conclusions that you guys can draw in terms of, you know, how, how, like you just said, the animals are using the landscape, how they're, you know, 
avoiding, um, you know, people for the most part, right? And and just how how different their interactions are, or their you know just movements or behaviors are from you know winter to summer, and and how obviously people, um, you know, have a a big effect on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People people definitely can, and um, you know, I think a, a lot of it is is these animals are you know, as a, a prey species, like they're eaten by other animals and, and they are, they have evolved to um, deal with the risk of predation um, by like modifying their behavior and doing the things like you said, you know, the white tailed deer with the flagging, the flagging yeah. of their tail that they do, you know, like that's an adaptation that they have to, to um, respond to predation risk. Yeah. And so for, for a lot of these animals, um, predation risk, like humans can essentially, and human activity can act very similarly to, um, like, or animals can respond to human activities similarly to how they respond to predators because they've just evolved to respond that way. Right. Um, and so that's, yeah, that's what we see in these areas where, um, human disturbance is occurring. Um, and, and especially when it, you know, on winter ranges in particular, like, and mule deer in particular, they have incredible sight fidelity. So like they go, most animals go to the exact same winter ranges and exact same summer ranges every single year. Um, again, not all of them, but the majority of animals, that's like what they do. And so if you think about it, like if you put a, a rig or a road and just plop it right in the middle of the winter range where this animal has gone to its entire life, like it, it generally doesn't know where to go. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not like they just can like pick up and move and, and go somewhere else, um, especially because on these winter ranges, these animals are already so packed into these small areas. Like, right. There are only there's only so much space and food that's available for these animals in the winter time, and so when you plop a, a rig or a house or whatever it is in the middle of this this range that this animal has relied on for its life, um, you're essentially like essentially stripping away food that is available to those animals and yeah. it, it makes it harder for animals to occur at a you know large abundance on on these um winter ranges or uh really just in general yeah so i want to switch gears a little bit here still sticking with kind of i think you know migratory um you know travel routes and, and things like that but you are actually um headed you touched on it earlier on um headed abroad to um is it to work on your your doctorate is that correct that's correct yep okay so tell us about uh this project that you're going that uh well just yeah, walk us through this <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> um yeah so i'm i'm working on reindeer uh with the the university center in svalbard so um Svalbard is in, it's an archipelago that's like way in the Arctic. It's 78 degrees latitude. Um, it's essentially the North Pole. Um, and so, uh, as you can imagine, um, reindeer or wildlife in that area, you know, that's kind of 
the Arctic in general is the at the epicenter of where um, the most significant effects of climate change are occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what my research is focused on there is um, how reindeer, how Svalbard reindeer in particular, so there are subspecies of reindeer, they're actually, that subspecies of reindeer is, it's an entirely wild population and uh, they're genetically distinct from like all, all other of the uh, circumpolar subspecies of reindeer, Okay, which is pretty cool. Um, but anyways, you know, their environment is changing incredibly rapidly with, with climate change. Um, there are, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely warming up there. And so you kind of, you have these two things that are operating at the same time for these reindeer you have during the summertime, um, you know, spring is occurring sooner and winter and fall is occurring later. So you have these like longer growing seasons that reindeer are exposed to so they actually they can actually have pretty good access to better food than they have typically but on the flip side what you get in the winter time is since it's warmer you have these rain on snow events and so it'll rain it's literally that it rains on snow that rain uh penetrates through the snowpack and will freeze at the surface okay uh, the ground surface and it ends up locking up food for reindeer Ah. in those areas so you have sort of these like two kind of competing things that that climate change is inducing or or are a result of climate change in uh on Svalbard and in the Arctic in that you have like better food in the summertime but winters can be harder for these animals because they lose access to food and so my my research is really focused on how climate change is um, affecting the, their food in that way and what that means for like the energetics of reindeer. Um, so how, you know, how, um, how the, the qualities of snow and, you know, this like basal ice that can form, what that means for how many calories reindeer are gonna burn throughout the course of a winter. And then in the summertime, um, and in particular in the autumn, you know, how is it with, with climate change, these longer growing seasons and everything, how does that affect the food that's available to them and the, the energy that they have access to in the summertime? And just trying to, my research is really focused on trying to tie those two pieces together okay. and understand um, essentially how reindeer will fare based on projections of, of climate change in, in Arctic systems. Now, how long are you going to be um, be over there um, uh, doing your research? It's a four-year program. Wow. Um, yeah, so I'll have for sure uh, two years of living um, on Svalbard. Okay. So, you know, all the data collection. I have some plant experience, some vegetation experiments that I'll be um, managing. And then, uh, you know, we we capture these reindeer every year and, and, you know, measure body fat and and their reproductive status and all of that. Um, so yeah, I'll be living in, in the Arctic for, for two years, at least four years at most after those first two years are, uh, after I've collected all of my, um, data in the field, uh, there is potential for me to, 
um, you know, work remotely. Yeah. Kind of thing. So how many other researchers are joining you um, on this trip? Uh, so <laughs> that's actually a good question. I, I I'm <laughs> not a hundred percent sure. We actually just got, um, so we just, we just were awarded a huge, like $3 million grant to, oh. to work on the, the, this population of, of reindeer. And there's, uh, from what I can tell, there's like a couple dozen people that okay. are working on this project together. Um, that's kind of what I've gathered. That's sort of the beauty of working in Scandinavia and Europe is their approach is highly collaborative. Um, which in, in the U.S. and North America, um, especially like in the research group that I had been involved with at the University of Wyoming, um, you know, we've, we were a highly collaborative research group as well. But it seems like it's sort of like tenfold in Scandinavia okay. <laughs> with how, how collaboration works. Um, so, yeah, I'm working with a pretty big team of folks, but um, I primarily have like three main researchers that that I'll be working with really closely um, with these reindeer and all of whom have been studying these reindeer for, uh, you know, over a decade. Okay. So yeah, yeah, you're definitely going in with some, some experienced researchers in, you know, with that, that have, you know, worked with, with reindeer specifically. Absolutely. Yeah. It's as, as you talked, as you were kind of explaining this and, you know, two years living in the Arctic and stuff like that, like, I, I know this is so not the case, but I just like picture you like getting in this like igloo every night and like sleeping like in this huge parka <laughs> with like fur around the hood and stuff. And like, you're just sitting there on your keyboard with it, like propped up on this like big ice, ice chunk or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I know. I mean, yeah, I think. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, I'm going to be in Scandinavia and they're like, so everything is so modernized. It's yeah. probably, you know, I'm going to have like, instead, I'm going to be in this like this cabin that probably has a bidet and like an espresso <laughs> machine in it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the complete opposite of everything I just said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but no, I mean, Svalbard is like a pretty wild place. Um you know, there's polar bears there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it is, it is the Arctic. Um, they actually, uh, there aren't very many towns up there. There's really just like one town, uh, Long Yerbien, which I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, but I actually. <laughs> You're asking the wrong person there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But um, if you leave the uh, like any of the settlements, you you're required to carry a rifle for oh, wow. bear protection. Yeah, and it's a minimum of a 308 caliber. So hey, not you know got to have like, a little knockover power in it. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so all of my field work, you know, I'll be on you know skis, doing field work with. A rifle on my back so it's gonna be like a james bond movie essentially <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> no. well that no that that's very exciting and i i'm sure that um you know it's you, you're very excited to you know just i mean that's just something completely new 
and, and different and, you know, the other side of the world. So, no, I'm, I'm excited. I mean, and I would really love, you know, whether it's a year from now or, or two years from now, you know, kind of hop back on this podcast and, and talk about, you know, what your experiences um, were like with that and, uh, you know, the, just the, the different things that you realized while, while up there. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that'll be great because, yeah, I mean, I don't like, you know, like you, I just, uh, you know, before I learned more about, you know, and this is all just through like Google searching <laughs> what it's like to live in Svalbard. Like, yeah, I had this image of me yeah. like being in a cold ass tent, with, you know, yeah. in the middle of the Arctic with like polar bear dogs that are fending off polar bears, you know, like. I I have like ideas that that of how it may be, but in reality, I have no idea what to expect. It's like a completely different environment for yeah. me. Not only, um, you know, not only culturally will it be totally different from what I'm used to here, but yeah, even just like the natural environment will be so so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey Sam, real quick before before I let you go here. Uh, I, t- I obviously mentioned it when I introduced you as being, you know, uh, on the board of directors for 2%. So tell me real quickly about your role with 2% and how long you've been on the board there. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm one of the newest board members uh, with 2%. Um, I, yeah, Jared and and Calvin and uh, Jess Johnson recruited me. I think it was around June is, or I think it was like later this spring or early summer. Okay. Um, recruited me as a board member and uh, they told me that they targeted me as a, a board member or potential board member because of my uh, background in wildlife research and you know me being a biologist I can uh, be a member of the board who can who can speak to any kind of questions that folks may have about research or yeah or any um or even just like biology or ecology more scientific viewpoint or or perspective on things yeah exactly exactly so i've actually i've only been a part of one board meeting i you know i haven't um i'm still just kind of uh figuring out you know what my role is with with two percent but uh, it's a really awesome organization and I'm really honored to, to be a part of it because I think, you know, they're, they're doing the thing that, that needs to be done right now, you know, like, yeah. uh, get businesses on board with conservation and, um, have people actually, you know, walk the walk and, yeah. and you know, take, re- take responsibility, um, and contribute back to, to the wildlife and the places that that they rely on for recreation or for um, livelihood and, and all those things. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more uh, in terms of kind of your assessment with two percent and you know what they stand for and, and what they're trying to do and you know that they're it, it's such an you know uh, it, it's an organization that's very inclusive, right? It doesn't matter what type of business that you have, what type of outdoor pursuit you like to participate in, you know, they want everyone to, you know, cause I think we all kind of have this, um, the same kind of end goal or the same, um, common goal with, you know, like you just mentioned, protecting our wild places and, and you know, wild animals and things like that. And just because, you know, um, you own an apparel company or you own a piano repair or a brewery or you're a real estate agent, like, 
just because you're professionally you do something different doesn't mean that you know from a recreation side of things you're not after the same the same common thing so it's very cool to see you know what two percent is and really since i first learned about two percent um uh, a year and a half ago or so maybe um you know the the companies that have come on board you know the great work and just um, I think the awareness that a lot more businesses have about conservation or that, you know, even, you know whether they they deal in the conservation space or they don't, it's it, it's really cool to see the, the reach that 2% has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, they're obviously like a pretty young organization and they are absolutely crushing it right now. And so I think that just speaks to... Um, you know, really the, the need for an organization like that, like people are wanting something like this and businesses are, uh, getting on board because yeah, they see how, um, yeah, it, it is like you said, like a, a really inclusive organization and we all have the same end goal and, and, um, being able to bring, uh, businesses and people in from all walks of life is really the best way to to achieve the, the goals that we're aiming for yeah no i i think that's that's very well said so sam i really appreciate you taking some time here before your trip to hop on the podcast and and tell us about all the great work that you've done um with your research uh i wish you nothing but safe travels and, and the best of luck uh Thanks. up there in norway and you know i'm, I'm excited to kind of to hear about the end results uh when you get back yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited to to hear about them too. I <laughs> really kind of no idea what to expect. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, yeah. safe travels, happy holidays, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot for this opportunity. All right. Take Have care, Sam. One. You too. Bye. All right. Well, big shout out to Sam for uh, taking some time to hop on the podcast today and wish her nothing but safe travels as she heads to Norway here in the new year. Uh, I'd also like to thank the partners over at Stone Glacier. Be sure and check them out at stoneglacier.com. also like to thank the partners over at 2%. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop for your gear. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media, where it's going to be nothing but positive, conservation-driven content. Uh, So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for conservation, you can look for them online on their various social medias or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this this week, guys. Uh, I hope everyone has a very Merry Christmas, uh, a Happy New Year, and gets to enjoy some time um, with friends and family and just, uh, you know, be thankful Uh, that we made it through 2020. Almost. We're getting there. So Merry Christmas, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time.